right. This is the day with uh, Reg Clay and usually Norman G, but Norman is actually working, and uh, we'll see him or hear from him a little bit later on. But I have a guest, Scott Munson. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Scott, we uh, sang you praises when Craig <laughs> Susan was here. Uh, we talked about Charlie's aunt and an ideal husband, and uh, you've written so many uh, fantastic plays. We also talked about WWJD, one of our favorites. Um, so, how, how are you doing? Wonderful summer day. Well, it's unbelievably beautiful and warm here in, in Oakland, and, you know, not to give too much information out, but Reg lives near a body of water. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, hey, living in the Jack is fantastic. I absolutely love it, and it's great bringing people here, and they're like, wow, this is fantastic. But, yeah, I think I'm just one of those uh, creatures of living near the water, so it's fantastic. It seems you have a specialty of writing of a Charlie's Aunt and an Ideal Husband. Those are adaptations of turn-of-the-century Victorian-type plays. Is that your specialty, or is that just something that, um, I don't know, an assignment that you gave yourself? I, it was more like a commission that I received from Susan Evans. Um, Susan, we've all worked at EastEnders, and, mm-hmm. and uh, when Susan became the artistic director for Douglas Morrison, she wanted to work in um, some new plays, but ones that wouldn't be um, completely forbidding or difficult for the subscriber base. So it was her brilliant idea to say, let's take uh, An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde and sort of pose the problem of if Wilde was like more of a contemporary American playwright, how would he have written the play now? Would he have written it about? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's very Sidney Lovett-like. I mean, I, was, <laughs> I mean, it's... It's very, very contemporary, and I especially, I think, in an ideal husband, there's a, uh, a black guy, I guess he's a butler in the Victorian, the Oscar Wilde version, but you sort of modernized him, and all of the characters are modernized, and it also had a very uh, 1950s, was it 50s or late 60s, early 60s? Well, we said it in the 1950s because in, in Oscar Wilde's original, you really have the feeling that the British Empire is at the height of its complacent power. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, World War One is still off in the future. The, you know, it's the British Empire in which the uh, sun never sets and the blood never dries. Right, right, right. And we are going to uh, rule the world forever. And so that kind of complacency, uh, I thought, well, what was the American equivalent? When did we feel so confident of our future and our right to rule the world? And it seemed to me it would definitely be before uh, Vietnam. And it, it would be, you know, I thought the 1950s was a good place to put it. Because, you, you know, you're right, the Eisenhower administration, yeah, you, know, we, um, was the, you know, the dawn of the Mad Men era. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it, it really did just work just perfectly fine. And it was a good run, wasn't it? Oh, we, we, had, a, we had a wonderful run and good reviews and, and audiences really loved the show. And uh, about the issue you mentioned about the butlers, in you know, the, one of the things I, I deeply envy Oscar Wilde's generation mm-hmm. was they could write parts for uh, Butler, Butler Smith, who has four lines, you know, yeah. you know and you know, the cast will have 25 people in it, and there was no uh, doubling or any of that. And when I looked at uh, Oscar Wilde's uh, original play, I thought, we have all these butlers, and, um, you know, we can't possibly duplicate that. But we do need to have a butler, and in Oscar Wilde's script, they're all Irish. Mm-hmm. So it was a feeling like, well, there weren't too many Irish butlers in uh, 1950s uh, Washington, D.C. They would be African-Americans. Right. So we kind of collapsed all of the uh, butler characters.
characters into one character. And um, I named him Roosevelt because they're all, you know, Rockefeller Republicans, and they loathe Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> so it was like, okay, oh, got it. it was a little bit... Uh, um, and there's a joke in the play where he talks about my, you know, my cousin Franklin and my cousin oh, sure. Truman. And <laughs> yes, and just, just the cliche that, you know, that black folks will. I mean, it's a cliche for a reason. You know, we're named after, you know, like my last name is Clay. I'm pretty sure, and I'm from D.C. area, but uh-huh. Henry Clay had a, had a role in yes. our descendants. So. so it was fun, too, because uh, that character could be, you know, I'd like to think the character is far more acerbic and and uh, cutting than the uh, than the Butler characters in Wilde's original. He's mm-hmm. much more of a uh, person who turns to the audience and makes commentary on the, the you know the sort of the fatuous nature of the yeah. The he cast. sort of shares in on the audience. Yes. He brings the audience in. I thought that was a fantastic um, uh, means of, of uh, bringing the audience in. That, that was just fantastic. Um, I want to write talk more about because you know I took a um, I went to the UC Berkeley. They had a playwriting class, huh. and um, I don't know if you know who Gary Graves is. Oh, gosh, that name really rang a bell. Oh. He, uh, he runs, he along with another woman, Jan, uh, runs uh, Central Works. Okay. And he has a playwriting, and he talks about, you know, playwriting concepts or whatever. But before we get into that, how did you get into theater? I mean, tell me about sort of how you grew up as a kid and um, how theater became part of your life. Well, it was a really circuitous route, um, and uh, I mean, there's a line, I think, in T.S. Eliot about how we're going a long journey and return to from where we started and mm-hmm. see the places though for the first time. Yeah. And that's, I, I kind of feel, um, about my uh, theatrical uh, adventures. My uh, my dad and my stepmother were both, quote-unquote, in the peripheries of the business. Mm-hmm. My dad was uh, an actor. And you can see him in very small roles in a lot of 1950s movies. Oh, wow. And uh, his name was Lank Rivers. And uh, imagine how Tony Quinn mm-hmm. looked back in the 1950s. Sort of big and rugged. Big and rugged, very dark, straight black hair. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most of the directors and uh, agents at that time said to my dad, well, you know, we're going to cast you for third Arab armored car driver. We're going to cast you for the upper-class Indian at Carlisle who lectures Jim Thorpe, or, you know, yeah, yeah. you know the, the fourth convict from the left who says, we won't eat this slop, Warden, right. yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it gave me, and so our, our childhood was formed uh, and uh, informed by this whole idea that you're always, like, one inch from something wonderful. And there was a family legend. I, I still don't know if it's true, and unfortunately my dad's passed on, so I can't really confront him, that it was between Jay Sil- Silverheels and my dad for Tonto. Oh, wow. And wow. that certainly would have transformed our entire life. Yeah. But wow. I think they wisely went with Jay Silverheels because he actually was an Indian. I mean, my dad came over from uh, Montenegro in Eastern Europe. I mean, it was just that he just happened to, to look a certain way. Yeah. And, uh, but it was a cruel life, and, uh, you know, you're always being uh, yanked around, and, uh, and, uh, and I kind of formed the opinion that I didn't want to be in that business. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with show business, so I, uh, after I went to college and I, I graduated, I flirted with being a lawyer and going to law school, and then I flirted with being a sports writer, and I did a lot of work, particularly kind of 
So where, where you syndicated? Well, I ran it. I was an editor of a magazine called Tennis Illustrated. Okay. And uh, our competition was um, a tennis magazine, which I believe was owned by uh, CBS and uh, uh, World Tennis, which I think was owned by the New York Times. Okay. And we were owned by, like, the... Joe Blow Bicycle Pump oh, Company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we had no, um, we had no uh, real financial. Why well, would never have gotten a job if I had, if they had? Mm-hmm. So because you know, like, you know, here's a bright young guy that's exploiting kind of thing. Sure, give sure. him an opportunity. Sure, yeah. And uh, so you know, I then I almost got a son ad in the paper that said uh, sports writers wanted. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, how often do you see that? Mm-hmm. And it turned out that it was a instructional design company that was writing training programs for the U.S. Army on how to operate computer systems. Now, what year is this? This is like late 70s. Okay. So I almost laughed when I when I uh, applied because I said, I know nothing about training. I know nothing about the computers. I know nothing about the Army. I know nothing about inventory and stock control. Mm-hmm. I know nothing. And, you know, it's like, nice to meet you. And... The guy who hired me, I think, had one of those imaginations that if the best way to get to him was to say, you know, to make the decision, you know, like, you, you don't need me, you don't want me, it won't work. Mm-hmm. If I begged for the job, he never would have given it to me. Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, we have a lot of PhDs here who, uh, it takes them six months to write a proposal for a preliminary study about blah, blah. And you're a sports writer, and you know how to write to a deadline, and all these kids in the Army read us the sports pages anyway. <laughs> Smart. Okay. So, so um, I was hired and uh, found I had a certain knack for it. And then uh, I went out on my own, and when I did, um, I got a call from a, a company, a, a bank in Florida, actually, that said, uh, do you write uh, training videos, industrials? And, uh, of course, it's like being an actor in a way self-employed say sure of course sure right and it was a bank of florida that uh, wanted a training program about how to be a good bank manager and because i knew nothing and they knew nothing and you know the cast you know pretty much knew nothing mm-hmm. i could do whatever i wanted mm-hmm. i wrote this like operatic you know, thing about <laughs> one day in the life of the branch manager and all her adventures i wrote in her husband you know and all that, this big elaborate thing and uh the main thing for for it was it was an incredible homecoming for me, Rich. I really felt like mm-hmm. this is my tribe. I love these actors. Yeah. You know, why did I ever walk away? Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, I think her name was uh, Rennie, mm-hmm. came up to me and she said, you, you know, this is, you know, this isn't half bad for an industrial. Do you write anything for real? And I thought, gosh, maybe I should. And uh, I wrote my first play based on that. And, uh, I guess that was uh, the early 90s. Wow. In the industrials, you're absolutely right, because I remember coming out of school, and I remember being in, like, one. I, I, I was really, like, maybe 18 or 19 years oh. old. But, that, yeah, that's, um, I, I think, especially for a budding actor, and especially for a budding playwright, that was a wonderful training ground, right? Oh, you're right. It enforces discipline from the writer's point of view. Mm-hmm. You may only have a sentence or two. Uh, one exchange to uh, create the character, mm-hmm. because then you've got to get into the, well, here's the seven reasons why, uh, Mr. Clay, you should be opening an IRA with our bank, and, right. you know, and then you've got to start conveying all the, um, uh, you know, the minutiae of the content, but you always had a little room 
to sort of set up who the character were, what the characters were, or to say something halfway funny or, yeah. or interesting. You really had to be economical and quick, mm-hmm. and that that was a tremendous challenge and discipline. And I and I really liked it, and I think the actors appreciate it too because you know, it's no fun for them to just be rattling off product specifications. Right, right, exactly. They of course want motivation and you know something really interesting. Yeah. Um, now, was that here? When did you first come to the Bay Area? I came to the Bay Area um, late 70s. I, uh, I, uh, um, I was in love, and uh, I, uh, you know, I thought maybe I was going to get married and everything like that. This is long before I met my, my Beatrice, my mm-hmm. the woman I actually did marry. Yeah, wonderful Beatrice. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. She was in the... Uh, as you know, Reg, okay, here comes the Let's Embarrass Reg moment. <laughs> Reg has written a wonderful play about um, uh, James Baldwin and Richard Wright and um, Chester, Chester Hines. Yes, in, in France in the 50s, and we did a reading of it here, and uh, I got to play Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> <laughs> and Beatrice played Velvet, uh, a wonderful Parisian a woman trying to sex up uh, Chester Hines. Yes, I mean, or is that? No, never. Oh, she would be so delighted to hear <laughs> that. Uh, no, no. Uh, wow. Beatrice has not spent, as far as I know, I yeah. mean, back in school days or everything, mm-hmm. but I don't think Beatrice has spent any time. Well, I figure if you're working on a script, maybe you would, you know, give her a script to her. Oh, say, you know. Yeah, we have done that, but, you know, I guess sitting around a table and here's your thing. But, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I guess you're right. That would, that she, she wasn't coming in completely mm-hmm. cold, but she always amazes me with, with the talents that she displays. <laughs> no, that is fantastic. So, now, you mentioned being here during the late 70s. That was around the time that Moscone was assassinated. That was when, I mean, it was just a tumultuous time in oh, San Francisco. It was horrible, and I, I remember like it was yesterday, practically. I believe I was on an airplane to um, uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, believe it or not, mm. uh, to do a training job, and it's my memory that the pilot came on and said there's been a horrible, we were flying San Francisco, Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. there's been a horrible, horrible shooting at City Hall, and, you know, eventually, you know, this is in the days, you know, nobody had cell phones, nobody had radios, I mean, we were completely cut off, mm-hmm. and it was only, my memory is, it was only a few weeks after the Jonestown disaster. That's exactly right. So exactly this horrific um, mass suicide, mm-hmm. um, and then the, these horrific murders at City Hall, and it really felt at the time, Reg, like the world is insane. Yeah. And the Bay Area is the epicenter of the insanity and, and, and cruelty of the world. And uh, I, I literally, I remember it vividly, and you know, just revisiting it is, is a strong measure of how, how ghastly it was. Yeah, I mean, uh, I could not, I could not even imagine. I was talking to my dad about I'm living in 1968, you know, around the time that uh, that Kennedy and and Martin Luther King, you know, um, was assassinated. And I think about even now. I mean, like recently there have been some shootings. I mean, uh, politically, things are getting very, very volatile. I mean, I'm sure not as volatile as let's say 78 or even 68. Um, just to touch on like current events, what do you think about what's happening right now? Well, when you said that, my first thought was, I really wonder if we are entering another period like that. Because, you know, we're recording this one day after the shootings at the... Um, at the, the congressional baseball. The congressional baseball game. Yeah. And it's... My memory is that um, 
there was Kennedy in 63, and then I think Malcolm X was killed in 65, yeah. and then Martin Luther King early in 68. And, you know, just to let you know how antique I actually am, I was a precinct captain and, and you know, door-to-door knocker on doors for uh, Eugene McCarthy back in that 68 campaign. Wow. I, was, I was, you know, I was like, you know, Amazing. a child. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, I remember I had a bunch of friends, and you know, they very graciously invited us to go to McCarthy's headquarters, which I think was at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I could be wrong. It was. This is L.A. This is L.A. Okay. And um, you know, the, you know, it was one of those things where the mood gradually grew more grim as we realized McCarthy is not winning; he's sure. not going to be president. Sure. And, we were all just grumbling about Bobby Kennedy and how, you know, he had stolen it from our hero and all that, you know, yeah. typical stuff. And yeah. then somebody, you know, like a Secret Service policeman came in, again, again, you know, this is such a different age with no connection to much technology, and said, Senator Kennedy has been shot and we're emptying the hotel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a Secret Service contingent guarding Senator McCarthy. We have no idea whether or not this is a you know mass hit. Right, and right. everyone has to go home. And it was dreadful because he did not die right away. He lingered all evening. And, you know, I remember I went home with this one young girl who was a friend of mine. And she was just completely hysterical. And, wow. and we were listening. We stayed up all night and listened to the, um, you know, the, on the transistor radio, the, the, you know, the 20, yeah, the coverage. The, yeah, yeah, on the radio. Yeah. And it was just ghastly. And then after a while, you began to feel like, I, you know, maybe it would be better if he dies because everything he was saying was there's no hope. He has no brain function. He's never going to achieve it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was a grim time. Yeah. And it's, you know, just it, it, it's assassination of a person. And also just it feels like the 60s sort of died right there. Mm-hmm. Um, did you consider yourself a sort of, uh, I guess, the 60s... Um, hippie or, you know, like the that, that sort of generation belief that, you know, if you just go out there and you can do all sorts of things, you can change the world. Well, it's funny because I, I, I think if we had met then, I would have told you I was more of an actor yeah. because, uh, you know, I, 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 I uh, played around with acting in, in high school and uh, you know, did like the Crucible and then mm. like everyone's doing the Crucible yeah. and yeah. Oliver and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then went to um, UCLA and uh, I, I was a uh, actor in a play, a student play called No Heroes, mm-hmm. where I played a scummy drug dealer named Gabriel. I can't uh, imagine that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I had to wear a top hat. You know, I mean, I looked like a Jethro Tull <laughs> refugee with the long hair. And, yeah. and uh, we had to smoke dope on stage. And I had never smoked a cigarette in my life. My, my friends all kidded me that my dad must be a Mormon because we had no coffee, we had no soda pop, we had no cigarettes, we had no booze. Because he was tremendously into physical fitness. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn to smoke because I'm this hardened drug dealer and I can hardly go, let's get home. And, and uh, I taught myself to smoke. We, it wasn't actually marijuana, of course. It was like hand-rolled uh, tobacco and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And boy, the end of the run, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I, I smoked for another like 10, 15 years just for that stupid part. Yeah. And uh, and that was that that was part of the beginning of the end for my acting career. I, it's funny about Oscar Wilde because I auditioned uh, for an Oscar Wilde play. Mm-hmm. 
uh, shortly after that and was like, let's hear your English accent, Mr. Munson. <laughs> I was so terrible, right? And I just like, I'm not an actor. Yeah. I'm not an actor. Well, thinking about English accents, I remember Susan, we did a play, um, and I think I'm looking at one of the posters there, um, 100 Years of Political Theater. Far and away, that, that was the play. And uh, she consistently got on me on English accents, like, oh. that, that, not that, that. And, of course, Susan's very, very, uh, very particular. It's the, um, from the bottom, it's the second to the bottom row, uh, ah. second to the, it's, it's dark, it's very, very dark. Yeah. I mean, there's no way you can see it. But you can see one of yours, WWJD. Oh, gosh, that brings back everything. <laughs> the bri- it's brilliant emerald green and yellow. And, yeah. and our good friend Craig Dickerson That's right. is uh, sort of like a medieval saint. <laughs> oh, that was, that was great fun. i got to definitely get him uh, sitting sitting here. Oh, please. <laughs> I'd love to hear that show. How many plays have you written? Well, uh, it's, it's hard to say. I would say for original full lengths, uh, five or six, mm-hmm. Uh, the adaptations or reimaginings, a couple of them, and then a whole bunch of uh, uh, shorter plays. So, um, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's it's been a few. Are you published? I've been published in an academic journal and one of those anthologies of, you know, best 10-minute plays kind of stuff like that. That's awesome. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. I've, I've never really thought too much or focused too much on the publishing thing because to me, yeah, theater is more something that is performed rather sure. than it's a book. Sure. You know, yeah. and, and, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think about, I wonder, because, you know, as an actor and sort of as a budding playwright, I never think about the business of playwriting. Oh. One thing that Gary Graves had said was, listen, don't expect to make any money playwriting. Um, because, you know, you have screenwriters and you have poets who, you know, get published and they, they get about the sell of their books and novelists, of course. But... Why um, Why did you get into playwriting? Well, again, there was that feeling of one sort of uh, reconnecting with my acting tribe. Mm-hmm. But once I started doing it, I really felt a tremendous joy in doing it. Yeah, I have to say I've never really been... Um, yeah, so my, maybe my critics would think I should be, but I've never really been in the... You know, open a vein and bleed into the word processor school. Oh, I, 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 I love the process of writing and creating. It is, tre- it is a tremendous joy mm-hmm. to be transported out of, you know, hum, humdrum, mundane life, mm-hmm. yeah. and to go other places and think of other things and dream about other characters. And to me, that kind of creative flow is one of the most precious things that human beings have. And you know, I'm sure you've experienced it too, that feeling like you start writing, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, you kind of look up and it's like 3 in the afternoon. That's right, because you're on a run. You yeah. know, you're just rolling, you're just, you know, going at it. Yeah, especially if, if the idea is just fresh in your head. And I go, I'm hungry here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. I don't need anything all day. That might explain it. And yeah. I'm fascinated about the business of playwriting. I mean, as an actor, I have to go audition. I have to, uh, you know, make connections with, let's say, you know, um, a director or whatever. And, and if, I, if the connection's good, I'll get a phone call. Hey, we need someone for a role. How is it as a playwright? I mean, how, what is the business of playwriting? How do you, I don't know, get your, do you promote, do you send your plays to theater companies? Um, well, it's, it's kind of all of the above. I mean, the way I made my connection with EastEnders was uh, Theater Bay Area used to have, remember in... Uh, 
who was at Fort Mason, mm-hmm. they used to have their uh, yearly meeting in Fort Mason, and there would be one room that was sort of for the presentations, and there was another room that was, uh, you know, resume photographs, uh, you know, Helping you with makeup, you know, helping you work on your elevator speech, you know. And the theaters would all have little booths. And that's where I met Susan Evans. Ah. The EastEnders had a little booth, and I went up, and uh, we chatted, and we hit it off. And I said, do you guys ever do original work? And she said, oh, yes, we do. And and, and Chuck Polly was still with us then. We chatted. And, and, uh, you know, it's like, why don't you send us something? And uh, so I think that... If I had any advice to to would-be playwrights or or beginning playwrights or mature playwrights, it's go out there and meet the people personally. Um, I remember I was at a playwriting conference, and um, some famous person was speaking, and and in the course of speaking, he said, um, and one thing we'd like to do is when we send out the rejection letters, Mm -hmm. you know, Dear playwright, thank you for your contributions to the American theater kind of letters, right? Right, right, yeah. Susan over here, and her, let's say his colleague, she would like to write a little note mm-hmm. and sign it. Yeah. She hasn't read the plays, but she just thinks it's better than sending it to a... And you could just feel all the, all the playwrights in the room going, Because <laughs> yeah. every one of us had gotten a note from Susan. Yeah. And... and you know, just feeling like it is so, there are so few opportunities for yeah. new work. Yeah. There, and they literally are inundated in manuscripts. And if you don't have a friend or a connection mm-hmm. or, or somebody that can help you get there, it, it would be a miracle, yeah. practically. Um, it's very tough to break through. It's very tough for a new playwright because a lot of theater companies, they don't want to take the chance. They're like, listen, we've got an audience, and we want to give them what they're used to. It's almost like serving them McDonald's, you know, 24-7, instead of taking a chance of a new playwright that no one's ever heard of before. Have you, is that a frustration of yours? Well, they'll look at you mm-hmm. and sort of say, is your play going to be the one that sinks us? Mm-hmm. You know, they're this close, most of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're not talking about ACT or Berkeley Rep here. You know, we're yeah. talking about small theaters yeah. and black boxes and places that have a, a, a commitment that in their hearts want to do new work. Because, you know, like, you know, how many times can you do Tartuffe? I mean, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, they, or our town. Yeah. Or our town, yes. They want to um, fulfill you know, that, that charter of being a living mm-hmm. theater. But um, they look at you, and it's kind of like, are you the one where you're going to sink our theater? And, you know, and when I think back to the experiences I've had with uh, theaters, not as a playwright, but just as somebody who liked the theater, mm-hmm. and you go there to see a, a play that's not by Neil Simon, or it's not by William Shakespeare mm-hmm. or Oscar Wilde, and this is a play maybe that's one of the Pulitzer Prize or something. And you go and you look out at the audience, and there's like seven people. Yeah. 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 I, I remember um, I was with, just before EastEnders, I was with a company called um, Bay Stage. This was mm-hmm. Bob Zick. I don't know if you remember Bob Zick. Oh, yeah. The name is Melvin. Yeah, he, he was an older member of the EastEnders. He brought oh, me yeah. in and, uh, and uh, a guy named Travis Bedard and a couple of others. And we did a play. It was a wonderful 21-year-old 
but just come out of school. His name was John Whittle Utter, and he did Water Buffalo. It was a uh, play. But basically, the company that we were with, they staged. We took a chance on it. So we liked the play, and we're going to do it. And unfortunately, just like what you were saying, there were like five people in the audience, and uh, it just it, it wiped us out financially, and, you know, the base stage closed down. Yeah. And um, it's unfortunate. Oh. It's, it's unfortunate that uh, you have young theater companies, and it's tough, especially now, because so many, um, so many medias are competing with YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Norm and I were talking about uh, how ESPN had to let go of several people because, you know, they're running running out of money. And if ESPN is having a problem, then, you know, local theater companies are having problems as well. How do you get a new person? How do you get a person who's used to television and what's, I don't know, PewDiePie on YouTube or, you know, some of those other folks? How do you get them to enter live theater? Mm -hmm. It's a a very, very tough sell. Oh, I I agree. And I I sometimes feel particularly... uh, when, you, when it's a younger audience, God bless them, that you know, there's a little settling in period where they kind of realize this is all there is. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll do the first few ten minutes or so of the show. You know, there's not, you know, they kind of realize it's just going to be people in three dimensions walking around saying things and doing things. But, you know, there's really not going to be any of the pyrotechnics that they're used to seeing. Right, right, exactly. No CGI and, you know, none, none of the frills. I wanted to talk about um, sort of the technique of playwriting. How do you, especially voices, you know, they say, or at least I've always felt that um, screenwriters write what people do, novelists write what people think, uh, playwrights write what people say, and poets write what people feel. Wow. Um, at least I, I think so. That, 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 that works for me. Could you write that down on a three by five? Yeah. Like, I can listen to yeah. this again. I remember. Oh, that, that's um, a beautiful. Thing. But like, when I write, let's say a female voice, let's say a someone like the Parisian woman, Velvet. Right. Of course, I'm a black man who's never been to Paris. I can do the best I can. What's your advice on playwrights who are writing for different voices and making sure that? The voices are distinct, if you know what I mean. Oh, I, I do, and I, it is a it is a tremendous problem, and I think particularly, um, you know, early in, in, in a playwright's career, it's easy to just have all the characters sort of be reflections of the playwright. Yeah, and and it, it really takes some doing. And I, I don't know if the problem ever entirely goes away. I mean. Look at Oscar Wilde. Everyone in Oscar Wilde seems to be rather brilliant and witty oh, and clear. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's as if all of the characters have the same voice. Yes, and there's not too many dopes out there. And and so it is a challenge. Um, you know, this, this is an interesting question for me because it kind of gets to my own sort of primitive beliefs about writing in general. So, um, <laughs> to the audience, now go get some popcorn and come back in about five minutes. You know, I didn't mean to put you off guard, but I'm sure, I mean, because I asked because, you know, your plays are very successful and it has, you know, the distinct voices. I think about WWJD, there's so many different characters. And even the concept, the uh, the the minstrel theater, you know, mm-hmm. comes in almost like very Elizabethan. Yes. And, uh, and But they're putting a play and it stars Alan Greenspan as the, the titular character, but there are all sorts of other characters that come in with different motivations and objectives, and they have their, their distinct voice. So, Well, I think one thing that I, I would encourage um, 
any playwright to do is to do some uh, study of theater history, mm-hmm. particularly uh, his theater before Shakespeare. I think there's a tremendously rich history, like in the medieval morality plays, mm-hmm. for example, which always deeply attracted me, but also Roman drama, Greek drama, and non-European drama. Yeah. Well, I find Japanese drama, the no drama, just incredibly fertile. You, It's like, I know I can't write that, but there's something about just uh, putting that in your head and in your ear that makes you um, start to think of things differently. So I, I feel that the more exposure that you can get to different theatrical voices, the better. Yeah. And I think a lot of difficulties that writers have now um, is that television and films are so persuasive and so pervasive mm-hmm. that um, it's easy to, and when you look at it, particularly like situation comedies, it's so two shot, one shot, one shot, two yeah, shot, yeah. A story, B story, 22 minutes, major beats, yeah. you know, it's so, and they have to have that to um, construct their work, but it gets so ingrained in you yeah. that I think if you can look at um, other theatrical traditions, they have very different sense of time and very different way of looking at things mm-hmm. that would be helpful. I mean, what I was sort of saying before about the, go get the, the, the popcorn break is I've been thinking a lot about creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, a big tension um, in a way between sort of like the way I understand it, Plato and Aristotle. Plato said that it's a divine madness. You know, you pretty much make yourself available and the gods speak through you. And Aristotle said, well, there's seven rules to tragedies. And the first wow. rule is, the second rule is, I remember studying that in theater history, yeah. And, and I think, you know, in a way, um, you can see why Aristotle would be popular because you can teach that. Right. You know, here are the rules and here's, you know, and, and, and when you go on Facebook now and you see those ads for the secret of playwriting, yeah. you know, you yeah. go like, I think they probably are speaking a lot about um, um, Aristotle. And it's hard. But I've always been a closet um, uh, uh, follower of Plato that I kind of think it's a divine madness, but it's up to you to create the conditions in which the gods can speak through you. Yeah. And that means educating yourself and learning and observing and watching and all that good stuff. But I do think there's something um, that's just, um, uh, I, I don't know, it, it's just creativity where you make yourself available and it comes out of you. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about creativity, uh, there's a wonderful TED talk there's a guy named Kirby Ferguson that talks about um, basically his his premise is everything is a remix and there is no originality. Oh, okay, he's got a point. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can't argue with that. And uh, and I guess the the objective because when you talk about sitcoms, I mean basically, the, I don't I don't even watch sitcoms anymore. When we talk about the seventies. There's another podcast that I have called Dude, and we were talking about how wonderful the 70s were as far as sitcoms are concerned. I mean, you had uh, All in the Family. You had uh, MASH. You had um, WKRP in Cincinnati. And when I think about some of those, you know, earlier sitcoms, I remember the different voices, the different yes. characters that gave it oh, so much color. Yes. And I think... Um, 
what, when I think about writing, I, I try to say to myself, I want to speak to as many people as possible and get many different perspectives as possible because that's you know, sort of what's needed. And uh, I mean, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And the other thing I, I would add for the 70s is for white America, I think it was a tremendous period of, of, uh, of discovery. Because even though from you know our perspective today, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things about those uh, uh, black exploitation movies oh, and, right. and sitcoms yeah. that make us wince now. Mm-hmm. If you take your time machine back to the 70s and you watch Good Times or The Jeffersons, right. or, uh, I don't mean the Cosby show. I mean things that were broad and yeah. vulgar and went for laughs. Yeah. Even even Uptown Saturday Night. I mean yeah. the movies like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, it opened. Uh, it opened uh, your ears and made you aware because it had been so segregated. I mean, one of the things about being older is that is that I have a living memory of when it was completely segregated in TV and movies, and the only African-American characters were the guy who came up to Gregory Peck and said, uh, would you like your martini, Mr. Peck? Sure, yeah. You know, and television was, I, I'm trying to remember any um, African-American characters in, like, any of the Westerns yeah. that I watched yeah. when I was a kid. Or Latino or Asian or, you know, Vietnamese. Or oh, no, it was a completely a Caucasian world. And compared to that, I mean, you know, pro- progress has been made. But um, I don't know. I go back and forth because sometimes I think, well, you know, progress has been made and things are better. And then other times I think, no, <laughs> no. Well, there's always a tug of war. I mean, even in the 70s, I think about how, Obviously, the 70s, I mean, that, you know, Nixon won by a landslide at the exact same time that, um, who was the, Norman Lear had been producing all of these, you know, very cutting-edge oh, yes. dramas and stuff like that. But he also had Sherman, I think Sherwin Schwartz. Oh, gosh, yeah. Who, uh, the Brady Bunch or whatever, which was very, well, when you think about it, conservative. Oh, gosh, yeah, and good, and good knowledge. I mean, they, you're right. I mean, there was the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family. Oh, yeah. and Donnie uh, Marie. Yes. And, yeah, Donnie Marie, Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and hee haw, oh God, yes, and all of these shows that, and you know, it's in living memory that uh, um, the southern television stations would send you know messages to the networks. I mean, like the famous uh, kiss between Uhuru and Kurt. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, if, if you sh- if they show a white man and a black woman kissing on this show, we will not, you know, oh, we will yeah. not carry the Star Trek anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. that is so, um, that's not that long ago. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and it shows the tug of war. I mean, yeah. you know, we're in a bit of a, I guess, tug of war right now. I mean, with, with things politically or what have you. But, um, but as far as playwriting, I guess that would be, you know, the real thing. I mean, when you – now, here's another question. Do you see – do you go to other plays and, let's say, and other new uh, productions and watch the talent? Yes, I do. And I, I say that the other piece of advice I would give to writers is see as much theater as you can. Yeah. Even if it's a play and you find yourself going, God, I hate this. Yeah. It – even sometimes those can be incredibly valuable lessons because you find yourself going, you know, if you had brought the, 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 the three witches with the cauldron, <laughs> right. you know, put them in the second act and instead of it being about, you yeah. know, and it might have been, you know, you can, I don't think I've ever seen any theatrical production where I didn't feel like I learned something from it. Yeah. And, and the more you expose yourself, because I really think you have to say, 
I'm so saturated in film and television mm-hmm. that I I really need to um, uh, take an antidote and an antidote an antidote and 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 the most important thing I think for 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 writers in my opinion is to just become really aware of the three dimensional physical bodies of the actors yeah and, you know the, the fact that the audience reacts to them but when they come up when they come downstage and they they're really there mm-hmm. you know I mean nowadays you watch a you know a movie and you know they take all their clothes off and you know, <laughs> but you know, right? In a theatrical session, I mean, if an actor just just takes off a, sh- a t-shirt, everybody kind of says, "Well, he's taking his t-shirt off." Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has so much more potency because the actual physical person is right there, and and uh, so I, and I think it's tremendous fun. And the other thing I wanted to say was, what you really need to do most if you're, I think, a, a baby playwright is to. Go backstage and say, I really like that show. Oh, that's right. You know, meet the director, you schmooze a little. Oh, I'm a writer too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that's far more better uh, than sticking manuscripts in the mail. Yeah. You know, meet people, tell them you like their work. Mm-hmm. People, you, it, it has to be genuine. You can't say, I like that, but God. <laughs> but, you know, you know, but yeah, because obviously they, I mean, I remember. Um, I just came from uh, doing a production called uh, The Chain, which is uh, basically musical theater. It's at the Ashby stage, uh-huh. or was at the Ashby stage. Um, actually, they're, they're accepting submissions even now. Um, but it was wonderful working with, um, I worked with the playwright uh-huh. who, was, who was right there. And I told her, hey, listen, I know this is your baby, mm-hmm. and I'm going to take care of your baby as an actor. I'm going to do as much as I can to get off book. And, you know, I was off book. It was just really 20 minutes. It was sort of a showcase. But she really appreciated the fact that I took it very, very seriously. Um, and I think you appreciate that as a, as a, uh, as a playwright. I, I do. And I, I thought, and the other advice I think I would give to, to um, colleagues is, you know, sometimes when you're with other writers, there's this bitch and moan thing about actors. Like they don't remember your lines and they don't, they say them wrong. And, and everybody has horror stories about the actor who couldn't remember their lines and all that sort of stuff, but I, you always want to say, hey, the actors have a few horror stories about us, you know, yeah. sitting out there going, I wrote happy to see you, and you said glad to see you, you ruined my vision, you know, yeah. and, and rather than saying, if the play bombs, I may feel bad about it, but they're the ones who are up there feeling flop sweat because the play isn't working. Yeah. I was going to ask you, because uh, I asked Craig about the, um, you know, dead playwrights, their works are treated like gold. You know, like you don't paraphrase Shakespeare. Um, I've, I've sometimes found, and I've noticed this in other productions that I've done, one of the very first productions that I did coming out of school, out of NYU, there, it was a play called A Barbershop in Pittsburgh, and the, the playwright was actually on stage. He was, he was actually with us. And uh, a lot of the actors sort of didn't respect him. They were like, hey, can you change that? I don't like that, those words or this or whatever. Do you get that as a... Um, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I, you know, I remember one director, you know, giving a speech to the cast. Yeah. The play. Said, now I want us to treat this play as though it were written by, you know, Williams or Miller or, so yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, and, you know, I said, do I, do I hit the, the dick? They hit the conversation <laughs> here, <laughs> you know, right. uh, and, and, and feeling like, oh, thank you for treating my little play, <laughs> you know, it as if it were. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it was so like, uh, okay, um, 
and I'll treat you like you were Elia Kazan. How about that? Um, but uh, yeah, um, a, a, a little bit. But uh, if I've actually felt it's it can often be more the other way that they they're afraid of you. They, you're judging them. You know that that you are um, that you're finding flaws in their performance, and you know I haven't. Um, you know, you haven't really uh, explored the complexity of the character that I've created. And if there's one thing I, I would I would harp on t- to writers, it's love the actors. They they are you know they are the people who are taking the real risks. They're the ones who are up there. They're the ones who are making your vision happen. If it's even your vision, because it becomes such a communal thing. If you don't like that, write lyric poetry, you know, or something that where you control the whole thing. But you're in a communal art, mm-hmm. and I love the image of, of of the medieval morality troops or Moliere, mm-hmm. where the or Shakespeare, where the actors were themselves performers, and there was a more communal sense of the work being created rather than I'm up here in my studio and I condescend to give you guys my script. Yeah, I was wondering, I'm sure there are some playwrights who they have the characters in their head and they want to have what's on stage exactly as it is in their head. And of course, it's it's not going to necessarily be that way. Well, one of the best lessons I ever received in theater, um, and F- Alice Shakina, if you're listening, this is about you. <laughs> We're loving you, Alice. Yeah, Alice Shakina. Alice Shakina, okay. I hope I'm saying it right. Because I adore her. She's a wonderful director. Um, I was doing a short play at uh, Bay Area One Acts. It was called The Spider on the Radio. Boa. Yes, Boa. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, the, you know, I had written one of the parts, mm-hmm. was a spider. You know. Was that with the Eureka? That was with the Eureka. Okay. I, I, you know, I, I often like to write plays with animal characters. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just like the way that everybody who knows me on Facebook knows that knows me more as the cat guy <laughs> than the, the playwright. So, um, the, there was a spider as one of the main characters, and, you know, here I am thinking, well, we want somebody who's angular and, you know, you know long, thin arms and legs, and, and, you know, it was a black widow spider, so, you know, usually with dark hair, dark complexion, all that sort of stuff. And the person that she cast was a cherubic, a uh, little on the plump side, uh, a woman who looked like... Um, like the most green Christmas green cards with the chubby little angel on oh, it. Wow. And I thought, that's completely wrong. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I thought Alice is so brilliant that um, if she made this decision, she has a good reason for it, and I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to go with it. Does it ever shock you when an actor or an actress takes your work and transforms it, not transforming the words or anything, but transforms, I guess, your meaning. It's like, wow, I, I read it, I, read, I wrote it this way, but this actor is bringing it in a completely different way. Yes, and you and I are totally aligned with that question, because that's exactly the thing. And I wish I could remember her name. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it was a while ago. But that's exactly what this actress did. She kind of played the spider as sort of a pure, wow. loving, cherubic mm-hmm. um, figure. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. would turn into, you know, <laughs> you know, it was to pounce on the fly. And it worked. And the audience loved it. Fantastic. And people came up to me and congratulated me <coughs> on my brilliance. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where I said, I'll pass the secret on to you, too. Uh-huh. 
your response is, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> no, because uh, I never would have gassed her, and, um, and she just totally knocked it out of the park. And yes, so I think being open, because you do have a vision when you, um, when you write the play that this is where the laughs are, and this is what the characters should look like. And then you do, you do um, the play, and you discover that that witty line that you wrote, you know, that was so Oscar Wilde-like. <laughs> yeah, just kind of lies there. Right. But the, 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 the part where the character says, what? <laughs> the audience explodes. Wow, yeah, yeah. And, and those are the wonderful moments. Yes. And I'm sure, does, does it, do you, um, how should I say this? Do you die a little or does it hurt a little if, let's say, you write something and it doesn't land? Not necessarily that it's the actor's fault, but let's say the audience. Do you monitor the audience? Oh, gosh, yes. I always make it a practice to sit as far back as I can. Mm-hmm. I remember once when I was first starting, I went to uh, one of the readings they did at Fort Mason. I think it was the Blue Bear School of Music. This is way back. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was another one of my uh, fellow Baden playwright, and uh, he, remember, he would sit in the front row and look at the audience and occasionally look at the actors. <laughs> like a, the script was like open and his nose is in the script, you know, like, and this big grin, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, I thought, well, it's really easy to do that because you, you do kind of fall in love with what you're in. But I would really recommend sit as far back as you can and uh, watch the audience. Yeah. You know, particularly if you want to see the show several times because mm-hmm. um, – it's interesting to see when they start looking for their cell phones and, you know, when oh. they start unwrapping the oh, cough drops yeah, and, yeah. and when they're riveted. Yeah, it really, yeah. really. How many, how many rewrites do you do typically for a, a standard play? Oh, that's hard to say. That, that is because sometimes, um, you know, uh, it's less and sometimes more. But I know that what I would suggest to anyone is get a reading as soon as you can. And be prepared to really start cutting, because no matter how much I don't think, no matter how much experience you have, until you actually hear it from other people saying it, you know, it's kind of like you'll realize, oh, there's four sentences in that character's dialogue there, and we really needed one and a half. Yeah, you know, and slash, 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 and that that doesn't mean you, you know. There's no reason to take that personally. That's that's gold to me. That's that's you really have discovered what you don't need. And I, I also like to think you're asking these poor people to memorize everything you've written. Right. So maybe if they have to memorize a little less, it isn't so hard. Right. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. No. That that is exactly true. And uh, I I'm flashing back to you know when we did the reading for. Um, Performing in Paris, you know, the play that I did, and that's, I, I remember saying to myself, oh my God, I'm making the same point three times. I need to, you know, <laughs> cut, cut it off a little bit. Is, do you find that it's better to overwrite and cut rather than, let's say, underwrite and have to add more? Well, I, I, I don't think I particularly to think of it in those kinds of terms, sort of like I, I write what I think is necessary, sure, yeah. and it's almost always too much. Yeah, I hear you. You know, I, I, you know, but I think everybody is, is different in that regard. I think some people, I do know people who are very um, haiku-like. You know, they, they, oh, they really almost like count the syllables. And so they are um, on the other side. But I, I, don't, I don't have that knack or discipline. I, 
but I do find pure pleasure in cutting it back. And, and I think that's one point I can really stress for people that it isn't it isn't bad. It's a joy. Yeah. Go at it. Yeah. And you know, if there's a if there's a piece that you have to maybe you can use that piece for something else if it's not working for you know that particular piece. I'm thinking about um, the, you know I talked last week about uh, WWJD and there's a wonderful piece where you write um, and I keep on talking about it basically the play and you can tell me if I'm wrong I mean it's uh, it's been 14 years I think it's God is it really yeah it's been a really really long wow time. I, I, wow <laughs> um, but uh, it's basically about uh, Alan Greenspan and he. Um, I guess he takes a drug. He's about, he's supposed to give a speech to Congress about what's going to happen with the budget. You know, he's got to make a, a very big decision. But along the way, he gets high. He uh, it's it's very farcical. I mean, it's almost I, I almost compare it to Abbott and Costello. Um, I thank you. <laughs> in a, in a, in a oh, way. I, I I took it as a compliment. I, I, uh, and uh, but there's a wonderful speech at the very end, and he he comes to a, to a catharsis. This the lead character. This um, Greenspan uh, character, where he's giving a speech and he talks about how there's a missionary. There's a um, there's a missionary who is in Japan, feudal Japan, and he's about to be assassinated. But they say, "Listen, your life is spared if you denounce the name of God." And uh, he writes this wonderful speech where, and you know, Greenspan is telling the story to the members of Congress. Where this missionary is saying, "No, I can't do it. I can't. I can't denounce the name of God." And I guess the cross sort of reanimates itself and says, "Yes, you can spit on me, step on me, do whatever you want to do. I was made to do this." And I was like, "Wow, that is just so powerful." And because the play itself is sort of farcical, it just comes out of nowhere. I, I just thought it was an amazing bit of writing. Um, Gosh, well, thank you. I, you know, it's it's funny. I. My own religious background was non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think either my dad or my stepmom had a strong uh, religious background. Um, uh, my stepmom had been raised in the Baptist church, and my dad had been raised in the Serbian Orthodox church, and I don't think they either of them were big church callers. And so, um, except like when we were really bad, and then it was kind of like, where did you get to church? <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in L.A., uh, but I would watch, so I didn't have any of the negative uh, experiences that many of my friends would have. Where they would say, "Well, I used to be a Catholic, and now I'm a Buddhist because I'm so the nuns would beat me." Yeah. I didn't have anything like that. I I would watch um, television shows, uh, and particularly Sunday uh, television shows where the various uh, preachers, usually most of oh, them, oh yes, yeah, and they, yeah, yeah you know. Um, I remember Reverend Ike, if you want your uh, pie in the sky, you go to another church. But if you want your pie right now with ice cream on top, you come to, you come to Reverend Ike. I, I love that stuff. Yeah. And it was so theatrical to me. And they call it the religion of prosperity. There's, there's a Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, gosh, yes. That, that's really close. I think prosperity is in it. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, we'll look at we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yes. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> destroy your flow. Yeah. But so Christianity has always remained a, a very powerful force in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think precisely because I received no formal education or I haven't been baptized, uh, I haven't been confirmed or any of those things, uh, I've not really even met a member of any church, but I always felt that 
power of it, and I never read that movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, came out. I felt like, it is the greatest story ever told. I mean, I'm sorry, it just really speaks to me. And that whole um, image of um, of, uh, what uh, the the power of, uh, it, it is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because you think of, you know, God being in this throne, a position of power and glory, created the universe, all that sort of stuff. And then you 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 see God as being somebody who is whose job it is is to take on all of this horror. And that is always um you know, struck me, I mean, again, I, I I'm not I'm proselytizing, this is a purely personal reaction. No, no, no. Yeah. But but I was very, very struck by that and and um and I know that in Japanese history, I think the Portuguese went to Japan and then um, uh, for a while they were allowed to sort of convert Japanese people. And then uh, the, I think the Shogun said, well, enough of this. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things in history to me is I do believe that in the late 19th century, when the Americans came back to Japan and sort of, you know, with gun, gun boat diplomacy opened it up again, mm-hmm. they actually ran into pockets of Japanese Christians who would say things to them in Latin, but it wasn't, you know, you know, Kyrie Eleuan or something, you know, it would be like Kai Ri Zanli, you know, sure, they, they sure. couldn't really remember, yeah. but they knew that there was some connection backwards. Mm-hmm. And I, I just found that whole story about... Um, about sacrifice and taking on sacrifice, uh, just incredibly powerful. I, I still feel that today, and I hope this isn't coming across like. And now send your yeah, no, no, fifteen ninety nine. Because you know, in the context of the play WWJD, it's really about Greenspan. I think I think the premise of the play, the the button, if you will, is just forget about the money. You know, I know we're a capitalistic society, but let's just let it go and let's focus on things other than money. I think that's what the premise of the speech and maybe the button of the play was. Well, it, it is such a radical, um, radical message. I mean, it's funny because, um, you know, uh, over 2,000 years, Christianity has been perverted and twisted and warped and this is exactly right. and everything like that. But the original message is pretty simple and, and, and extreme about, you know, give away everything you have and follow me and help the poor. I mean, it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty simple. And, uh, and the rich man will, you know, it's harder for a rich man to get through the eyes of the evil kind of stuff, you know, and the, the good the, the good guy who has a nice life and a few bucks in the bank who goes to Jesus and says, you know, how can I be a better person and give up everything you have and follow me? Right. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. can I just write you a check? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I find it fascinating because I remember talking with, um, with Norman or maybe it was another one. We were talking about the Great Awakenings. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of the Great Awakenings? I've heard the phrase, but I don't think I know yeah. too much about it. Well, basically, there are four great, I'm sure the folks are like, oh my God, what are we getting? <laughs> I'm not going to proselytize either. But there are four great awakenings in the, in the United States, and they're basically four spiritual movements that sort of helped form the United States. One, Jonathan Smith, he gave the speech, Sinners in the Hangs of an Angry God. Wow. Uh, which was which really before, this is like in the Puritan uh, period. And it's sort of, you know, you have the Salem witch hunts, and that was part of the first great awakening. You know, God oh. is angry, and you've got to obey, and if you don't obey, bad things are going to happen to you. And uh, the second awakening, which happened around the 
mid-1800s, was really, um, it sponsored or fostered abolitionism. Wow. Uh, and, you know, Christians were saying, how can we call ourselves Christians if we have slaves? Yes. Um, so that was very important. And then the, the third one, which was in the late 1800s, sponsored uh, activism, where you had Susan B. Anthony and Clara Barton, um, not just talking about uh, suffrage, but also uh, temperance. You yes. know, uh, get away from me, drink, and all that stuff. The Fourth Great Awakening is actually televangelism. Wow. And, you know, the PTL Club and all of those guys, Jim Tammy Faye Baker and, uh, and this whole uh, the prosperity thing. And unfortunately, it's sort of a bastardization of Christianity because it's about money. It's, it's using, you know, religion as a means of making money and also influencing politicians. That's yes. how Nixon sort of turned, you know, turned those uh, blue states red. Yes. Um, and, and listening to you, I mean, it really struck me that uh, about abolitionism and, and beginning to vote for women. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that we are so associate um, Christianity and politics as a profoundly reactionary thing. Yes, it is. Yeah. You know, and it, it's about depriving people of their fundamental rights and just, just a horror story yeah. of the sort I mean, of stuff. The, the wars are created. Yes, religion. exactly. Got Middle East on our uniforms and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I was just flashing because uh, I have an actor friend who once asked me about whether or not I'd like to do a, write a one-woman show on, on Harry Pitcher's show. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I, I did some research on it, and I just, I don't think this is, this is really for me. Mm-hmm. But I was so struck by her and, the, and her husband and that whole movement yeah. um, and the African-Americans who freed themselves. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they, you know, that was one of the few times in American history where you had the feeling that there actually was some brotherhood that, uh, um, that began to transcend racial boundaries where people were actually taking in yeah, I, what I would say is the true fundamental message of, of, of Christianity. Christianity. Yeah, exactly. you know, and, and which is com- completely contradictory to you know having you know four fancy rings on your fingers and your spray painted hair sure. and getting up there talking about homosexuality, <laughs> you know, and all right. those creeps on the on the. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I mean, we can talk, you know. Tons and tons of, about that, but it is, you know, and Harry Beecher Stowe, I mean, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I mean, even the book and even the phrase itself has been sort of bastardized. Mm-hmm. I mean, no African American wants to be associated with Uncle Tom, but you have to realize it was the abolitionist book that, yes. that, um, that, that spawned a, uh, a revolution. And the famous quote, I don't know if you thought of it, Abraham Lincoln met her. And, oh, that's right. And said, you know, here's the little lady who started the Civil War, right. you know. Because there was something, I think, about the book that, um, you know, made it impossible, or much more difficult, shall we say, mm-hmm. for people of conscience to sort of say, well, we'll look the other way. I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm from a long line of Southerners. Mm-hmm. And on my mother's side, you know, up through Virginia and Tennessee into Mississippi and into East Texas. Mm-hmm. And when I think back on this, I, I think, I, boy, I bet you somebody owned some slaves probably in that group. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all if I had relatives who fought for the Confederacy. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to, to, to forget how, um, I mean, 
what I'm looking for is how commonplace it was, how it went without saying. Well, of course we own slaves. Uh, you know, big yeah. deal. And I think what the abolitionists did was awaken people's consciences to the fact that this is not right. I mean, that from us, sure. it's, it's, it's easy to say that. But when I think about 1840 America, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, the area Beecher Stowe said, you know, it's wrong for a human being to want to have a human being. People want to know what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, really? <laughs> Actually, let me get my, wrap my mind around that, <laughs> you know. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the, um, uh, if Michael Thomas Town's listening, he's, he's a playwright who wrote a play called Run Jenny, which talked about basically uh, a slaveholder's wife freed uh, a slave, uh, and I think she was killed as a result of it. Um, and for how we did it for the Fringe Festival. Um, have you ever done the San Francisco Fringe Festival? Um, yes, I think I did have a show in it um, many years ago. Um, a good friend, Elaine Clark, Elaine, if you're listening, uh, had voice, did, had a, um, uh, we did a show that was kind of a spoof of, uh, of uh, Law and Order. Oh, is that right? It was just a silly little comedy, and, uh, you know, I just made fun of, it focused on the trial part, and it was just making fun of every cliche that you have in, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was a lot of fun to write because, you know, it was like, Go broad, <laughs> go broad, and, and, uh, and just uh, yeah. slapsticky stuff. Before we leave, because we're rich, we're reaching the hour mark. What time is flown? Yeah, time has flown. Well, yeah, I guess time flies when we're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite plays of yours, and I'm not sure if it's even been done. Dearest Frank lights a cigar. What? Well, cigarette? It's a cigar. It is a cigar. Yes. It, and it's funny because uh, that you know. That, that play has been published, and it has won prizes, but it's never been produced. And it's been talked about at several um, venues about whether to do this, but it is one of those plays where people kind of go, well, you know, this is kind of dark, and it could sink the theater. It's one of the few plays I've written. There were no laughs in it. It was, a, well, there's a couple of it, but there was, a, it was, I wrote it when I read um, the book Brecht and Company that was about whether or not Brecht had, you know, you know, exploited the women in his life and um, used them to create his plays. And I, I was not so much interested in writing a did he or did he not play about Brecht himself, but I wanted to write a play that would kind of cover the same ground, but was about the theme that I think is uh, very universal that creative artists who are men find it very easy and comfortable to appropriate the work of the women in their lives. Yeah, yeah. And and it's just natural, you know, and that's how, uh, that's the issue the play explores, but it also explores sort of these themes of tyranny that, you know, an artist can find himself tyrannized by the larger state, but at the same time, that artist is creating the same conditions of tyranny for the women already in his life. Yeah. And when you mentioned tyranny, from what I remember, I think we did a reading of the Yes, Spike. you sure did. Yeah. And not only is there tyranny, because basically the lead character is sort of a, um, he is Bertrand Breck, but you don't mention his name. I think, you know, the name that you give him is Frank. I forget the name. Frank Fotzer, which is kind of an inside <laughs> theater joke, because... Brecht wrote a play called Fotzer with a character with ah, yeah, Fotzer, yeah. So, But you have the imperialism of Russia, mm-hmm. and you have the imperialism, if you think about it, of America, mm-hmm. the House of American 
and he said yes to speak in front of the uh, yes and yeah. yes he did and he survived it by sort of you know playing the absent-minded professor and I don't quite understand English and yeah. what did you say and and just sort of you know kind of talk you know almost double talk and the and the, the senators all went off I don't I don't understand what this foreigner is saying to you no right. I don't want you excused you know you know kind of thing yeah no I, I remember that and of course the visualization I just uh, I forget how you wrote it but when he smokes the cigar and the the the, um, the the smoke sort of is like a, a cover or a, um, yes. a veneer, and he can transform himself. I have very much the image of a, of a, of a squid who secretes ink to do the same thing. And thinking of a human being who can do that with cigar smoke. Mm-hmm. You can kind of create this cloud around you that no one can see through, and it's harder for the predators to, to get you, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she has to be a real nice reading of that play. <laughs> well, of course. I, yeah, I totally remember it. And uh, well, I've kept you. I've kept you well long enough. Um, thank you so much. Oh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Did you have any last buttons or last anything? Do you have anything opening uh, soon or right now that you want to promote? Yes, thank you. That's so kind of you to ask. If uh, I don't know if this will be, uh, well, tomorrow, the Saturday, the uh, what is it, the fifteenth? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. I well, it's it's, it's um, today is the sixteenth. Oh, so, so it'll be the seventeenth. So the seventeenth, I'll be appearing at the Town Hall Theater as Oscar Wilde or Oscar Wilde's American's co- American cousin. If anyone is there, we're having an Oscar Wilde literary salon because they're doing um, Ideal Husband. And then in uh, mid-July, uh, Piano Fight has resurrected the Twilight Zone. Right on, that's right. And you wrote a piece for them. Oh yes, my beloved friend Craig Susan will be directing it and Daria Hepps and, uh, and Brooke Silva and I'm bad. No, you always do this, right? You forget the James Galileo and, uh, uh, gosh, forgive me, Dan Foley are in the cast. I hope I got all those names right. And uh, the play is, a, if I just say this real fast, back in the 60s, uh, Serling wrote a play where uh, a no-talent TV writer brings back William Shakespeare mm-hmm. to write TV shows. Ah. And he uses the play to skewer Tennessee Williams and Marlon Brando, and a very young Burt <laughs> Reynolds plays Marlon Brando. Wow. And does a great job. Mm-hmm. My play is it's now, you know, many years later, mm-hmm. and Serling has realized the error of his ways, uh-huh. and he's rewritten the episode. So now Tennessee Williams is the hero who comes back mm-hmm. to help a young uh, woman who is a screenwriter mm-hmm. and to help her uh, create a more poetic vision of the theater. And the uh, Marlon Brando character now isn't Marlon, care about art and the and and the, you know the the studio and all that actor studio and all that sort of stuff or what's my motivation? But the the actor now is a total conglomerate. Uh-huh. All he cares about is you know what are the tertiary rights? Uh, you know what are the uh, uh, ancillary rights? You know all that sort of stuff. So it's it's a f- I hope it's a fun comedy and and I think Tennessee Williams lovers would would care for it. Wow. All right, at the piano fight because I remember the um, the it used to be at the darkroom theater. Yes, and because uh, I remember uh, being a part of that, and uh, so now it's at the play fight. And where is that at? Piano fight is is I believe in the Tenderloin. Okay, it's a wonderful space, and you can get a great great uh, bar food. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a great little restaurant that makes like hamburgers and stuff in theater. And I just wanted to say a tremendous another tremendous shout out to Danny Spinks uh-huh. who is. Uh, resurrecting this and has made it happen and uh, was profoundly grateful. That's fantastic. 
And with that, we're going to wrap up this part of it. Scott, thank you so much oh, for coming. My <laughs> pleasure. Come by the show, and uh, I'll buy you a beer. Excellent. Okay, and that will be it, and uh, we'll have no one to choose.